This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Good to be here. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello. We'll start with American politics again this week. The dust from the election a week and a half ago has mostly settled And Donald Trump has already started campaigning for the next election. We sent our newest Trumpet print edition to the printer today, and it has a major feature article, the cover story from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, a picture of a pugilistic Donald Trump on the cover with the headline, Ready for War. This week, he announced his candidacy for the 2024 presidential race. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. That's right. The 2022 midterms aren't quite over yet, but the 2024 presidential race has already begun. We're uh, we're still waiting for the Results of a one governor race, a one Senate race, and five House races. But we can now uh, safely say that the uh, Democrats will control the Senate by a slight margin, and the House and the Republicans will control the House by a slight margin. So that is actually uh, good news for Republicans, not as good a news as they were hoping for, but uh, some positive developments with the control of the House. But what it's even uh, better news for the Republicans as Donald Trump declared his candidacy. Now, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the media outlets are going to disagree with that assessment on that, uh, saying that. Uh, oh, I'm sure you've seen the headlines that Trump's the biggest loser and like a Trump candidacy is going to take the Republicans down uh, for sure. But uh, you actually look at the numbers and despite the uh, despite the negative publicity Trump's getting from the, the never Trump movement in, in Congress and some Republican leaders, uh, all the various polls I've seen show that still about 80 percent of Republicans, uh, a vast majority of the party has a positive view of uh of president trump and he he gave a really good speech on on tuesday about his new national greatness agenda that i think uh i think a lot of conservatives are going to get excited about this is this is his uh this is the part of the national greatness agenda i'm most excited about where he has three three proposals for reforming our broken election system it's one require voter id two have same day um voting like you vote on election day uh and three you only do paper ballots so that only citizens can vote we're not going to have this uh week of waiting for mail-in ballots to slowly trickle in and we've actually got a paper trail that can be audited uh so so that would be amazing yeah it's amazing how uh how simple that is and yet how how much pushback you would have from people who would insist that that's entirely too radical Right. No, I was uh, uh, I showed a, a Harry Hursty's Kill Chain documentary to one of the uh, IA uh, Imperial Academy classes this week. And uh, it's funny there because this this documentary was made before um, mm. the 2020 election, right. back when the story was that 
Trump stole the 2016 election. Right. So you had all these prominent liberal senators, Amy Klobuchar and several others, talking about how America needed to go back to a paper ballot system uh-huh. and how this should be a bipartisan issue. So I'm going to hold them to that now yeah. because it's I, I agree with their assessment. I don't know if I agree that the Russians stole the 2016 election, but I do agree that we need to go back to a paper ballot system and it should be a bipartisan issue. So we'll we'll see if it's still bipartisan now that the uh, the voting machine system's benefiting the Democrats. But Right. So... This is one of the things that he proposed in this in this speech. You know what you, you said that eighty percent of Republicans still have a favorable view of, of Donald Trump, which that is an astonishing figure when you look at just how vast the forces arrayed against him are. You know, since the election, and even the way that uh, his presidential uh, candidacy was covered in the media, it's just they they just can't. Dump enough shade on Donald Trump. I mean, the the New York Post with the headline "Florida Man Makes Announcement." You know, this type of thing. You you really see a lot of people saying this is an absolute disaster. This is a train wreck. This is going to be a boon for Democrats. Uh, the resiliency of the support that Donald Trump enjoys truly is astonishing. Yeah, it, it is a strange thing. I think that twenty percent of Republicans who don't support Donald Trump somehow or another all got elected to Congress uh, because, <laughs> it's, uh, because yeah, you, you definitely see a, a bigger divide between him and the Republican leadership. Yep. But amongst the, the actual people, he's still pretty uh, he's still pretty popular. And um, yeah, it is one of those things where you see the media outlets and there's this this schizophrenia. There's the schizophrenia to their reporting that uh, shows that it's not genuine. And the fact that on the one hand, you've got like Al Sharpton say Trump's the gift that keeps on giving. And mm. uh, and these other people saying that if Trump was a Russian plant, he couldn't have done. Or, you know, if Trump was a Democratic plant, he couldn't have done more damage to the Republican Party. Yeah. And it's like this is the worst possible candidate they could choose. And then on the other hand, you have pe- like people talking about like we need to indict him. We need to get find some way to use the 14th amendment to bar him from running from office because if that man ever puts his name on a ballot again he could be elected yeah and you're like well if yeah. your first if your first <laughs> Which announcement is was good that like if he, if he was a loser like then you should be happy like you should be, <laughs> trump's announcement should be the best thing that happened to democrats if he truly is the biggest loser in the republican party yeah but you're there's this schizophrenia of, of like saying that oh no he's He's going to destroy the Republican Party, but we're still absolutely terrified right. of him running in the Republican Party because, like I said, 80 percent, 80 percent of the Republicans do support him. And uh, like I said, yeah, I've seen I've seen a couple jokes that the Democrats are really concerned that if Trump runs, uh, his margin of victory will be several orders of magnitude greater than the margin of cheating. <laughs> you can only you can only steal a couple of percent so percent of election without getting caught. So if you're if you're getting a a big enough a margin of victory, you can overcome the you can overcome the mail-in ballot fraud that's marred the past two elections. Tell us more about uh, his speech. Yeah, his speech. Like I said, the part I liked the best was the voting reform, but he. Uh, he also talked about really trying to like drain the swamp by imposing constitutional term limits on members of Congress so you don't have senators who are there for 28 years. Uh, he, he talked about uh, finishing that border wall, uh, imposing the death penalty for drug trafficking, 
uh, banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools, uh, barring men from participation in women's sports so that women can win a couple of those contests again, um, terminating the, the socialist disaster known as the Green New Deal, uh, yeah, no-holds-barred campaign against gangs, uh, putting American on Mars. So some, some ambitious plans, but mostly, mostly focused around reforming our election system, securing our border and draining the swamp. And I think those are the three things that's got the 80% of Republicans supporting him. Cause mm -hmm. it's like that if you can, uh, Trump went in his meetings with Texas governor, Greg Abbott, he said several times that that's probably the biggest two problems in America today are our rigged elections and our open border. So if you can just fix those two things, you'd have had the most successful presidency of the 21st century. Yeah. Well, I really uh, look forward to uh, you reading this article by Gerald Flurry, the cover story of the next trumpet print edition, Ready for War, talking about the the, the announcement that uh, Donald Trump made, the uh, the forces that are arrayed against him and how he plans to take them on and what Bible prophecy says about this, that will be coming out early next week, and uh, you can stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can read Stephen Flurry's article, Donald Trump Just Won't Go Away. It was a trumpet brief from earlier this week, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. Over to Europe, Russia just unloaded its heaviest missile attack against Ukraine since the war began last February. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was on Tuesday that Russia fired a barrage of missiles on Ukrainian cities and mostly at civilian targets in those cities. And it was more than 100 total missiles, which, uh, as you said, does make this the largest missile strike since February when Russia dramatically escalated this uh, war. Ukrainian air defense systems were able to stop the majority of these incoming missiles, but several of them still got through. And uh, that means that there were some civilian injuries and at least one fatality. And a lot of these were aimed at energy infrastructure in Kiev and Lviv and a few other cities, which means that power has been out for millions as a result of this during what is a, a very cold time for much of Ukraine right now. Uh, water is still out of commission for many areas as well. So this attack, it was really part of Russia's terror tactics. You know, they're not even trying to strike military targets with these barrages in most cases, but instead they're intentionally aiming at civilians and civilian infrastructure just for the purpose of needlessly harming civilians and to instill terror in the Ukrainians. So it's a, you know, it's a major aerial strike and just more evidence of the ruthlessness of Vladimir Putin's Russia. So why, uh, why is Russia doing this now? What does the timing signify? Yeah, well, this was prompted by Russia's loss of the city of Kherson. We, we talked about Russia's retreat from Kherson on the show last week and about just what a massive loss and just a major humiliation that was for the Russians. Uh, Kherson was actually the only regional capital that Russia had captured since February. And it was also part of the territory that Putin said that he had formally annexed and made a part of Russia just a couple of months back. So being pushed out of there by the Ukrainian military was, was a really heavy blow to Russia. So their answer to it 
was this barrage of missiles, the largest, you know, since the war broke out. The Russians thought that if they rained these missiles down on Kiev and other populous areas and left many people freezing, then it might make them feel a little bit better about losing Kherson. So there was also this, uh, these two missiles that dropped on Poland. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. This was a really worrying part of this whole story, because at the same time as these Russian missiles were raining down on Ukraine, two missiles suddenly struck Poland. This was a, uh, a remote part of Poland near its border with Ukraine, but there were still two Poles that were killed by one of these missiles. So, you know, of course, a tragic loss of life there. And the initial reports suggested that these were Russian missiles, that Russia either accidentally or, or possibly even purposefully fired into Poland while it was attacking Ukraine. But then after the dust settled a bit, authorities said that these were more likely Ukrainian air defense missiles that Ukrainian forces accidentally fired into Poland while they were trying to strike inbound Russian missiles. Um, but even though they were Ukrainian defense missiles, the blame still, of course, lies with the belligerent nation that was firing missiles at its peaceful neighbor in the first place. You know, if a, if a maniac is trying to stab you and you push him away in self-defense and an innocent bystander gets a black eye as a result of your push, that's still the maniac's fault for causing it all. So mm -hmm. I think everyone recognizes that for the most part. But the big reason why this was so worrying is because Poland is a member of the NATO Security Alliance. So the fact that missiles crossed into Poland's territory and killed some of its people, that's the kind of thing that could trigger NATO's mutual defense clause. An attack on one can mean an attack on all. That's, that's essentially what that says. And so there were fears that this could potentially put America and other nuclear-armed NATO allies in direct conflict with nuclear-armed Russia. Um, now, it looks like those fears have mostly subsided, especially since the missiles are almost certainly now believed to have been Ukrainian, not Russian. But I think this still shows just the, the potential for escalation in this war. Well, this, uh, this latest missile attack from Russia definitely points to what we have been expecting, the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin is not going to surrender the Ukraine war easily and that this could very well presage greater escalation in Russia's efforts over there. We will keep our eyes on that. In the meantime, we do uh, have our booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, that puts all of this in prophetic perspective. And a couple of articles that uh, Mr. Jacques wrote on thetrumpet.com that we'll link to in the show notes about this heavy missile attack and those missiles that hit Poland. Uh, go check those articles out. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. The current U.S. administration and the Democrat Party has a history of hostility against the Jewish state of Israel. This is evident in an unprecedented decision by the FBI to open a criminal investigation into an incident that took place in Israel. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegall. So we're going back to something that took place uh, far earlier in the year, going back to May 11th. This was a, a firefight between terrorists in the West Bank and IDF forces. And uh, in the process of this firefight, uh, there was an Al Jazeera reporter, Shireen Abu Akleh, uh, who was killed in the crossfire. And, and there was a, a big um, uh, investigation into this. Um, to see how she died. Uh, the Palestinian Authority didn't hand over her body to the Israelis, didn't let the Israelis look at the bullet that killed her or anything like that. However, 
there was so much pressure from the United States on the Israelis to come up with an investigation um, that Israel did admit that this person probably did die in the in the midst of this battle uh, as she was embedded uh, with the Palestinians and by by accident by an accident by IDF uh, soldiers, and they thought that might be the end of it. The Israelis actually shared all the intelligence that they had on it uh, with the Pentagon, with the State Department, and both those departments of the United States were satisfied. This, of course, is a dual citizen. She is a dual citizen, American citizen. So the U.S. had some interest. However, as Channel 14 revealed, Channel 14 in Israel revealed on Sunday, the Biden administration has not been satiated by that Israeli response by this investigation. Instead, believe it or not, the Federal Bureau of Investigation with the Department of Justice is now calling for an investigation of its like by itself. The FBI is now going to investigate the killing, has requested to be able to interview Israeli soldiers in this cr uh, uh, crossfire uh, death. This is absolutely unprecedented. Um, back in 2002, there was a killing of an American inside Iran. This is the only other time that the FBI has has investigated uh, a foreign military. It has never investigated uh, foreign military action. This is it has never investigated an ally before, uh, and yet that's what the Biden administration is doing. Now, the Biden administration claims that they have not, they did not order the FBI or the DOJ to go after the IDF in this. Um, however, considering that the Pentagon State Department said everything was okay and it wasn't enough, it's hard to see how Israel's uh, number one ally or one of the number one allies of the United States is coming under unprecedented FBI investigation and that not going all the way to the top. So the way that this is being reported, uh, the emphasis is, is really uh, on Congress, on uh, some of the more radicals within the Democrat Party in Congress that are putting pressure on uh, opening this investigation. You're, you're saying uh, that's a distraction. Well, I think it, we have to see it as a distraction, given how the, the Justice Department and the FBI were weaponized during the Obama administration. The Biden administration is just coming out in this, and acting in the same manner, except now against a foreign ally, um, which does make complete sense, given that when we saw the Obama administration uh, in power, that Israel was treated with utmost disdain. Uh, by him, this was a personal animus against the state of Israel that he had, seeing it as a colonialist power hurting the the Pal native Palestinian population, and this is how this this idea is, or this is how this is being uh, dealt with. Um, again, who do you investigate? Who does the FBI normally investigate? They normally go after foreign, uh, do go after foreign terrorist groups, foreign terrorist acts and to go after and treat Israel in the same way they treated Iran in 2002, it shows what they think of Israel. This is what Ted Cruz uh, said on Tuesday. He said, Joe Biden and his, his administration view Israel and Prime Minister-elect Benjamin Netanyahu as political enemies. And so they are responding to them the way they respond to all their political enemies, by unleashing the FBI. Our, our Israeli allies have, since the very beginning, cooperated closely with the United States in investigating this incident. And the State Department and Defense Department had already drawn their conclusions, which was fine. Then Cruz continues, um, 
the, this outrage underscores how corrupt and blatantly politicized the Justice, Despa Justice Department has become and how entirely beholden to the radical left uh, squad Democrats they really are. Um, this administration has spent its time in office weaponizing the DOJ to target their political enemies as a matter of policy, and now they have allowed that tactic to bleed into their obsession with undermining our Israeli allies. That's a huge quote, but it's it's important because it puts it in the context of what we're seeing domestically. Uh, the FBI, DOJ going after going after Trump um, all through his his time in office and even before his time in office and even after his time in office. And now we see it for the first time. These um, massive American intelligence agencies going after and targeting Israel. I mean, the Israelis, left or right, they they are they are furious that Israel would be put in the same basket as the terrorists. Yeah. And, and and they are, I mean, Lapid's government's still in power, and he said, there's no way in the world we are letting you sit down with IDF soldiers to condemn them and say that they are behind this, this uh, that they targeted this journalist on purpose. No one accepts that. No one believes that. Um, and yet that's what they want to do. Now, I see this as something, uh, this is going to, immediately on day one come before Benjamin Netanyahu's desk what do you, how do you deal with an FBI investigation into the IDF what are you going to do this is Biden the Biden administration or Obama backing him setting Israel and America up for an absolute clash setting them up for a not warm relationship on day one but it's 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 going to create a, a national uh or just a huge problem with this alliance from day one that Benjamin Netanyahu gets in power. So we are expecting this. As soon as Netanyahu, uh, it was announced that he had won that election, then the uh, the clash between Netanyahu and the Biden administration was inevitable, given uh, how many holdovers from the very anti-Israel Obama administration that he has. Uh, <clears throat> it's happened quick. Yeah, it's 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 going to welcome him. This is what Carolyn Glick said. She said the Biden administration has ordered the FBI probe because it wants a crisis with Israel. It wants it. This is not a, the state of Israel is not an ally of the Biden administration in terms of that's what not what the Biden administration wants. Israel's happy to ally with the United States. They love the United States. They support uh, the, they love the support from the people of the United States. And they look at this and think, what is going on with American leadership that they are going to target us like they target terrorists or and, uh, foreign adversaries on their own soil as well? So I think this this is very important. I think people reading America Under Attack, Mr. Flurry's book, would look at this now in the same light as the attack of the FBI and the, and the Justice uh, Department on Americans and those investigations into Americans now it's going onto the allies as well. I think that book and several chapters in there have so much about the anti-Israel fervor of the Obama administration and also how the FBI was used. And it, it's applying to the now to the to the relationship with Israel. All right. Quite something. We will keep our eye on that uh, on that relationship as it unfolds. Netanyahu hasn't even formed a government yet. Uh, and one would expect that uh, that 
the relations between the two would grow even more sour in the time ahead. Thank you very much, Mr. Noctegall. Over to the UK now, which has just decided to address its economic troubles by dramatically raising taxes. To learn why and what the effects will be, we will go to Richard Palmer. Yes, the UK government announced yesterday that taxes will be going up to their highest level since the Second World War. A pretty dramatic rise, you know, given that Britain was fighting for its survival during World War II. Now we're not engaged in any kind of a, a fight, but uh, the taxes will be now taking up 37.5% of the economy. Purely by way of a comparison in the United States, taxes take up about 27% of the economy. So you're looking at roughly one third more uh, in terms of the tax levels and uh, what I think is most egregious about what they've just announced is that people on benefits. So these large and growing number of people that are on out of work benefits that are unemployed or there's a, there's a, been an explosion since COVID of people who are saying that they're unable to work due to health reasons. This can even be due to reasons of mental health. Uh, you know, they just say they're depressed, they get money from the government, this amount of people, they will see their incomes protected. Pensioners, people on government pensions will see their incomes protected. So those incomes will go up in line with inflation. The amount of money they get from the government will be going up by somewhere around 11%. Uh, the government could have put it up in line with average earnings, but they chose not to. So you've got this massive tax burden. Everybody paying taxes will be paying more. But if you're not paying taxes, if you're not working, uh, you actually see your uh, income rise much more than anybody else's. So what's motivating the, uh, the government to, uh, to make such a bold tax increase? Debt. You can answer that in, in one word. We also have our, pretty much our highest peacetime level of debt. Debt is set to be, reach its highest level for... Uh, I think it was 63 years. So to go back to a similar level, you'd have to look at when we were paying off all that money that we borrowed during World War II, not actually have to go back to the war itself, but it was still war debt that was being paid off. So the government is borrowing around half a billion pounds every day. And then, at the, so we've got this massive debt and then interest rates are now rising. So there was a lot... For the last 10 years, there have been lots of people saying, yeah, it's, debt is good. Government should be borrowing more. Interest rates are low. There's very little cost to borrowing. But now we're seeing those kind that uh, the consequences of those kind of actions, where the government's highest item of spending is the NHS, the National Health Service. After that, it's just interest on the debt. And this is only set to increase as interest rates rise further. Maybe you can help to frame what we're talking about here in the, the bigger picture of what's happening in Britain. Uh, what got Britain into this debt? And, and also, we're in the middle of this leadership crisis. We've had uh, this rapid turnover of prime ministers recently, and uh, Britain's debt problem played no small role in causing that to happen. Can you uh, explain that to us? Yes, I think for both Britain and America, we've seen kind of this explosion of debt for no reason. We've talked about this a fair bit on the website where both on our on, and magazine where both countries were borrowing huge amounts of money, even though times were good. 
you know, over the last 10 years, British debt, American debt, they've both exploded. Uh, so uh, the Brit British debt in 2007 was 600 billion pounds. Now it's gone up to about 2.4 trillion. Some of that was created in response to the 2008 financial crisis, but then we never balanced the books. We never, we kind of merged into the state of permanent debt. And we, then we, we, we've taken the easy way out at every opportunity, which usually just means throwing more money at the problem and borrowing more money. So when COVID hit, we had just a, a massive and expensive reaction where the estimated costs of all of the British government COVID schemes were about 400 billion pounds. They put most of the nation on the government payroll, paying huge numbers of people to stay at home and do nothing during COVID. Uh, it was ended up being a borrowing of about 6,000 uh, 6, pounds per person. And what this, this is what has led us to where we are today. And I think there are things that you can criticize very justly in the budget that has been presented. But a large part of this was inevitable. Sooner or later, uh, you're going to have to deal with this epic debt problem. And maybe it is, in fact, better to be rising taxes and dealing with it sooner rather than just continuing to uh, continuing to try and skate on by. But the reason we're here, though, is gets back to I think, leadership and even national character. You know, why why have we continually taken the easy way out? Because whenever we're set with crises, it is the easiest thing is just to flash that government credit card and borrow more. We, do, we haven't had the leaders that have been prepared to say, wait, hold on a minute. Can we afford this? And then there's a, a national problem, I think, of, of free money where you had the Labour government back in the late 90s dramatically expand who could get money off the government. And once you give people money from the government, you, it is incredibly hard to take it away again mm -hmm. because people feel like... Uh, they're, they're now owed that and you're robbing them of something if you take it away. And so we've had a leadership entirely without courage to make hard decisions, entirely without courage to reform the size of the government, to get it back into living within our means, to deal with problems in any other way than the simple, easy, temporary fix of borrowing more money. So, yeah, the economic problems are a symptom of a massive lack of courage. And this is what we talk, what I talked about in an article we've got in our upcoming Trumpet Print magazine, uh, just about this leadership crisis, where you've got this situation now in Britain, where we've had three prime ministers within a year, and kind of echoing from one disaster to another, and nobody is really satisfied with the way the country is coming because our bold leaders are gone. And like we talked about in that article, the Bible gives us some very precise explanations as of why. You know, it tells us that the, that as we destroy our family, we destroy our capacity to develop strong leaders. You uh, get rid of a solid family structure, and just even government policies have been doing this. You take you the way government money now works. Often, single mothers are better off than married mothers. Uh, they're cutting the need for the father out of the homes, and even encouraging fatherless, divorced, separated homes. So you do that and you lack strong leaders. And then God says, well, he's adding curses. He's adding in this lack of leadership so that we can learn not to trust in human leaders and look to him. But this this massive debt problem, it's a symbol of some big character flaws. Well, Mr. Palmer has written an article in the 
print edition of The Trumpet that we sent out today about the leadership crisis in Britain. And uh, there's even a, a sidebar in there specifically talking about the role that debt played in that crisis. Uh, I really encourage you to read it. It's an excellent article that goes into some uh, very vivid and specific prophecies in the book of Hosea about modern Britain. Uh, really excellent read. Thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Palmer. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Russia's trade with Japan thriving, the Eurozone entering recession, Iranian provocation in the Gulf of Oman, and a massive legislative attack in America on traditional marriage. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Russia has been suffering economic sanctions from several nations because of its war in Ukraine. One nation is doing the opposite and thriving in its trade with Russia. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the latest data was just released by Japan's Ministry of Finance yesterday, and it shows that Japan and Russia are continuing to trade this year in really substantial volumes. Uh, Some categories are down over last year, which brings the total down just a little, but others are way up, especially with Japanese exports of computer components and medical equipment. With computer components, it was up by about 340% over last year's volumes, and then medical equipment was uh, up about 800%. So just some, some really substantial increases in some of these very important sectors. Japanese deliveries of cars and engines were also up considerably compared to last year. So these are all products that Russia doesn't know how to make on its own, at least not up to a reliable quality standard. The, the Russians just can't manufacture a lot of this high-end sort of product. So it's really a valuable lifeline that, you, that the Japanese are throwing to the Russians. And the big headline here, as you said, is just that this is happening while America is leading an effort to try to punish Russia for its war on Ukraine with uh, just a whole range of sanctions. And Japan is supposed to be a staunch U.S. ally, but here we're seeing some significant daylight between American policy and Japanese policy. So I think it's just a a pretty sobering look at how superficial America's ties with Japan are and at how willing Japan is to do this kind of a deal with the devil. Japan's alliance with uh, America also seems to be called somewhat into question in uh, a visit that the uh, Japanese prime minister made with China this week. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. Exactly at the same time that this trade data was being published, showing that you know Japan is moving closer to Russia at a pivotal time. At that exact same time, the prime minister of Japan, Fumio Kishida, was having a meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. This was in Bangkok, Thailand yesterday, and it is a, a notable meeting. This is actually the first time that Kishida and Xi have met since Kishida has been head of Japan. And it's the first time in three years that Japan and China have held any leadership level meeting. Uh, That's largely because of just the really intense mistrust between the two nations. China's been growing more and more belligerent. Um, 
including in the waters of the East China Sea and some areas there that are owned by Japan. And the two nations are really, they're locked in an arms race right now, fueled by mutual fear, fueled by China's efforts to assert just more and more dominance over all of Asia. So things have been very tense between China and Japan for years, and they remain tense, but a meeting like this could signal a thaw. And reports say that the main purpose for the meeting was to find ways to improve their relationship. So we don't yet know the practical steps that they're planning here, but this is something to keep a close eye on. Well, these certainly are worrying signs for anyone who uh, has uh, who views America's presence over in Asia as a stabilizing force over the as it has been for these past several decades. But it is consistent with what uh, the Bible prophesies, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we, we often talk on the show about the Bible scriptures, um, about an end-time Asian alliance. It's called the King of the East, Kings of the East in, in the biblical language. And one of the passages that we go to quite often is Ezekiel 38. The first couple of verses of that chapter show that Russia will be the main nation, the lead nation of this Kings of the East alliance. And it also shows that China will be Russia's main partner at the head of the block. But then if you keep reading down in uh, verses 5 and 6, it gives a few names there showing some of the other specific Asian countries that will also be a part of this alliance. And two of the names are ancient terms that are describing modern Japan. So yeah, even though Japan is currently a strong U.S. ally, we should expect it to eventually break ties with the U.S. and to throw its lot in with uh, the Russia-China tandem. So with those Bible passages in mind, I think it's very significant to see Japan right now ignoring U.S. efforts to isolate Russia and instead selling Russia vital goods. And it's potentially significant also to see Japan and China just trying to find ways to improve their relationship. Where would you send someone who wants to learn more about this, Jeremiah? We have a uh, one of our trends articles. It's called Why the Trumpet Watches Japan's March Toward Militarism. And it goes through all of those passages. And uh, I think that'd be a good starting point. All right. Thank you very much for that. Economic trouble is hitting Europe. In fact, it is forecasted that the entire Eurozone is entering recession. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, Britain isn't the only country struggling with debt or economic problems. The European Commission published their autumn forecast on November the 11th, and they showed the, the Eurozone officially entering recession, with economic growth shrinking in the fourth quarter of 2022 and in the first quarter of 2023. It forecast that inflation would finish the year at 9.3%. That's actually a little less. Uh, than I would have thought it, it had done. So we'll see if it actually uh, meets that. It talks about real wages falling as any pay rises or any increase in wages are eaten up by inflation. And it shows that a lot of this is going to be, it would be led by economic trouble in Germany, where they would see their economy shrink by 0.6% in 2023. And all of 2023, they're predict predicting of being a pretty bad year with Eurozone economic growth um, round, finishing up the end of 2023 at only 0.3%. This is obviously uh, bad news for, for all of Europe, but uh, it seems Germany plays a, a particular role. This is the largest economy within Europe. It is looked to for economic leadership 
uh, many countries in Europe. And I, I, I just wonder what what does this say about Germany's leadership and uh, its role within Europe more broadly? Yeah, this is a tough time for all countries in Europe and the world, really, in terms of economics, uh, you know, lots of cutbacks, high inflation. But it's the, the it's kind of a normal winter. You know, you're going to have slowdowns every every now and again. Germany has a much bigger and more structural problem, where they may need to rethink their business model, their may of, way of doing things, because Germany's economy just depends very strongly on exports and so what they're they're now reaping the downsides of this so you're okay you 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 depend a lot on exports a lot of those exports might go to one particular country and then all of a sudden there's massive sanctions dropped on that country that's now a big problem for your whole economy there's a shift even away from countries relying on other countries to to make goods we've problems in the global supply chain have been exposed. People are starting to worry about where their stuff comes from. Uh, and that's a big problem for Germany. People conclude they don't want some of those critical things made in Germany. So the trouble with Russia and US sanctions preventing them from trading with Russia in the way that they used to is a major reason for this shortfall. But it's a systemic problem as well, because if it's Russia today, it could be China tomorrow. Uh, it could be any number of other countries. So for them, They've got a wreath. They've got it's more than weathering the storm. And it's more like rethinking their whole business model and their way of doing things. And that could lead to a lot more bad news before they get that sorted. So talk to us about uh, what biblical prophecy says about these economic troubles throughout Europe and uh, Germany more specifically. So Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has an article, How the Global Financial Crisis Will Produce Europe's Ten Kings, because we've been watching this closely, this, this link between economic crisis and bringing about change in Europe. And this is something that comes very strongly when you look at using Bible prophecy to, to guide your news watching, where... The Bible says that there were some pretty dramatic changes coming to Europe, some huge changes. You know, Europe moving away from this relatively peaceful, democratic, collegial type of government to something that's autocratic, that led, that's led by kings and strongmen. And there are lots of passages in the Bible that talk about these kings and strongmen. It's also got to transform. The Bible talks about it being a power made up of 10 different countries, 10 kings. Right now it's 27. And they've weathered a few storms and it's stuck around 27. You haven't seen it shrinking down to 10 yet. You haven't sh seen some kind of two-speed Europe where 10 nations move forward by themselves. They've certainly talked about it, but conditions haven't been dire enough for people to say, OK, we need to make some radical changes for the European Union. There's also the Bible talks about it as a military power. Right now, it's not because or it's not as big as it could be because it relies a lot on the United States for help. So we're looking for some something pretty big to shake Europe up and to bring about those major changes. And those Bible prophecies, I think also, in, they give you some pretty good hints that we're going to see some economic changes because when it talks about this resurrected Holy Roman Empire in Europe, it makes it very clear that it's a global economic power and that the global economic system really revolves around Europe, not the United States. And that's never a, an easy transition for anybody. You put that picture together 
and you see how you could have this big financial shock come along and lead to these kind of changes. And this is what Herbert W. Armstrong talked about and had some great insight on based on those Bible prophecies. That's what Mr. Flurry writes about in this in this magazine. It's like I said, it comes right from the pages of the, your Bible. And so that's why we watch what's going on economically in, in Europe and especially in Germany so closely. All right. Well, how the global financial crisis will produce Europe's 10 kings is the article we'll link to in the show notes if you want to learn more about those, those prophecies that Mr. Palmer was just describing. Thank you very much for bringing that to us. Another provocation from Iran in Middle Eastern waters, this against an Israeli oil tanker. To learn about this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. On November 15, there was an Iranian drone. It's been confirmed to be an Iranian drone that struck an uh, oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. We haven't seen too much action from these drones in this really important area, this this uh, vital oil choke point as it comes out the Strait of Hormuz from the Persian Gulf, and then you enter the Gulf of Oman. Um, but this is what took place. This this drone caused a, a massive hole in the ship. Thankfully, no oil uh, spilled out. However, this was just a, a really aggressive action by the Iranian regime, something that we've grown to see and expect. Um, and it, uh, unsurprisingly, this this the 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 ship that was attacked it was known as the Zircon. It is owned by an Israeli uh, billionaire, and so. Iran chooses its targets as best it can. It can targets with Israeli uh, or Jewish uh, affiliation. And this, again, is something that took place uh, just this past week. It seems like it's been a little while since uh, we heard of something like this taking place in, uh, in these waters. Uh, what is Iran up to, do you think? Why would it, uh, why would it do this? I think it's uh, it's hard to know exactly why it chooses to do something like this. Uh, perhaps it is just a reminder of what they can do to to international shipping, uh, uh, particularly attacks against Israelis. Um, I think it also could be connected to a report trying to cover for a report coming out from the IAEA, the the Atomic Energy Watchdog, of what Iran has been up to. Um, they re released a report a couple of days after this or a day after this um, that indicated that Iran is full steam ahead with its nuclear weapons program uh, in terms of the amount of uranium that it's enriching. Iran has, has held back from enriching, at least from what we know, to 90% to weapons grade. But what they are doing is preparing a lot to get to 60%, which only takes another month to get to weapons grade from 60%, um, and, and, and increasing a stockpile of that. So the IAEA says now that Iran, should they choose to go to 90%, will have enough uh, weapons grade uranium in one month to have five nuclear weapons, not just one or two. And so it's really, this is a, a huge jump for them um, to not just have one, you threaten the world with one nuclear bomb, but to have a growing nuclear arsenal that it can jump to 10 or 15 or 20 nuclear weapons in the space of a month and just hold back from, from that month until it has a significant stockpile to maintain a huge threat. So I think what we're seeing is perhaps this is some type of uh, cover for that or distraction um, for that, but, but we'll have to see. 
If you want to learn more about Iran and its role in end-time events, do read our booklet, The King of the South, by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Noctegall. One final story. The U.S. Senate has just struck a major blow against traditional marriage. For this story, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. In a very rare display of bipartisan cooperation in America today, uh, Republicans and Democrats have joined forces to advance same-sex marriage legislation. Now, uh, for for some background on this bill... Uh, after the Supreme Court overturned the Roe v. Wade case that made uh, abortion a federal right, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and some others were saying that they could use the same rationale to overturn the Oberfell versus Hodges case that made same-sex marriage a federal right. And so the, the Biden administration decided that it needs to do everything in its power to get both abortion and same-sex marriage legalized congressionally so they don't have to rely on judicial activism like they did in the past. It doesn't look like they have the votes to do that for abortion right now, but the House of Representatives passed the Respect for Marriage Act last summer. And this Respect for Marriage Act uh, shows respect for marriage in the same way the Inflation Reduction Act reduces inflation <laughs> right. uh, in that it, it basically overturns the Defending Marriage Act that was passed back in the Bush administration and makes same-sex marriage in all 50 states legal, like the states over, overturns the states' rights to make that illegal. And so the House passed this this summer and now it was up for it's up for debate in the senate just after thanksgiving and it looked like they had the votes in the senate so ted cruz and one other senator went to filibuster it um basically where they were just going to speak against it till they ran down the clock and so they needed 10 republicans to get 60 votes to filibuster proof this bill and they actually got more than that they got 12 uh 12 republicans came over and joined the democrats to uh, overturn the filibuster so they can debate this bill. So now that the filibuster is gone, they only need 51 votes to pass it. Mm. And if they got 62 to overturn the filibuster, they'll, mm-hmm. I mean, Camilla Harris can break the tie if she has to, but I don't think she'll have to. I think they'll get <laughs> at least one of those 12 Republicans will, uh, will vote for the bill itself, which means after Thanksgiving, this is pretty much will be a, a moot point whether, the Supreme Court overturns Oberfell versus Hodges or not, because like same-sex marriage will be uh, law congressionally made law in the United States. And the uh, I looked at the support, and it was kind of shocking. Where they 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 said that fifty-eight percent of Americans supported a bill like this to to legalize same-sex marriage in all states, including about seventy-five percent of Democrats, sixty-two percent of Independents. And 36% of Republicans, so about a third, uh, I guess only 25% of the Republicans in Congress voted for this bill, but they said like nationwide, it's probably about a third of Republicans have pretty much surrendered the fight against same-sex marriage and decided to focus on abortion or some other cultural issue. 
Yeah, isn't that amazing that the uh, the Defense of Marriage Act was uh, Bill Clinton? That was a that was a uh, Democrat uh, endorsed bill, uh, or he he was the one who signed okay. it into law. Uh, and to think that now you have uh, over sixty votes in the Senate and all of these Republicans going over to uh, to uh, undermine that law, which was intended to prevent exactly this type of thing from happening. Uh, it just shows you how quickly and how dramatically America has shifted on this very fundamental, foundational issue of what is marriage. Right. Like you said, if it was Bill Clinton, then like back in the 90s, even the Democrats understood what was marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time you got to the Bush years, this was kind of like the front lines of the culture war with uh, Democrats versus Republican. Now, like you get to the Biden years and, and like I think Joe Biden himself said, he's like, well, he's like over abortion. He's like passing a bill to legalize abortion is going to be hard because we're going to have some staunch resistance from conservatives. But he's like, but same sex marriage is like that's not even <laughs> uh, that's not even much of an issue now. It's like the there's some division within the Republican Party over it. But there's enough <laughs> there's enough rhino Republicans to support the Democrats that they can push that push that through it's it is really is like abortion and transgenderism are more at the forefront of the cultural wars now where same-sex marriage is pretty much a decided issue in america why is this uh important for people to uh to care about Uh, the general idea seems to be like people can love who they want they can marry who they want it's none of my business right and um i I did a short write up for the the website that links to some material we've done from this before one of the, one of the uh one of the articles we linked to is from uh me where i'm just explaining why it's so important to the radical left where if you actually go back and read some of the foundational documents of leftism uh the, the writings of Karl Marx and the the writings of Frederick Engels uh, they're very blunt in the fact that like a self-sufficient family unit of a man and a woman producing children that are biologically theirs is one of the greatest threats to communism because you've now got a self-sufficient economic unit that doesn't need the state to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying it's like basically if you want to have a, a dear leader who is the father of a nation running a totalitarian state that controls and helps everybody you need to get rid of the competition Mm. by uh doing away with the family so there is actually even just from like a socioeconomic standpoint a vested interest leftists have in doing away with monogamous marriage between a man and a woman for economic reasons and, and basically to centralize everything yep uh and yeah. that's one of the reasons the Bible, the Bible, God did. <laughs> I mean, in the in the Bible, God speaks uh, pretty forcefully against homosexual marriage, and uh, and then and well, we have books, the the God Family Vision booklet, the Redefining Family booklet, that go beyond even the economic reasons I was describing, uh, and going more towards the spiritual reasons of uh, of marriage and family being. Um, a physical allegory of the relationship between Christ and the church that you can't understand uh, 
in a in a same sex relationship. So now you've got so both for both economics and spiritual reasons, this is this is a a thing that society is doing now that really destroys capitalism, destroys free markets, destroys free societies. Uh, in the long run, destroys freedom. Uh, on the one hand, and then also on the <laughs> on the even higher plane thing, just makes it so you're you're not even capable of comprehending. Uh, the God family vision. Hmm. Well, we will uh, link to our, our booklet, Redefining Family, that goes into this subject in quite a lot of detail. It's interesting that booklet was written eight, nine years ago, and um, same-sex marriage was kind of the big issue at the time that that booklet was written. The the uh, society has moved far more into far more radical territory since that time, but the uh, core arguments that that booklet makes are absolutely critical to understand and apply directly to understanding why this decision by the U.S. Senate really is uh, uh, a, a major mistake. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Calvin Coolidge. If you see ten troubles coming down the road, you can be sure that nine will run into the ditch before they reach you. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.